In the early afternoon of September 12, 1915, a British vessel set off from the western coast of England and freighted up the Irish Sea towards Scotland. It was a warm day, but most of the men aboard, confined to an airless chamber below deck, longed only to escape the sickening quarters. The passage was short. After traveling seven mi 70 miles, the SS Connaught docked at the Douglas Breakwater on the Isle of Man. Immediately, the British guards overseeing the ship lowered a ramp and began shouting commands. Wearily, the men disembarked. The scene was chaotic. There is no law or order whatsoever. A reporter from the Peel City Guardian witnessed the whole thing and reported the madness. Within minutes, men from the ship were confused with locals milling about the harbor, most of whom were Manx people native to the isle. Eventually, separated from the crowd, they marched along South Quay and boarded a steam-powered train that weaved sluggishly into the heart of the isle. As the tin gray sky turned starless black, the train stopped at St. John's Station. Another march followed, this time under the watch of King's Liverpool Regiment. For hours, they trudged through soil that sunk like clay, over streams through cattle gates. In the distance, hundreds of bright lights flickered, sight rare in the customary blackness of wartime. Almost like Paris, one of the men thought. The beauty soon faded, for the lights loomed not a city, but a compound enclosed by barbed wire. Only when the sun rose the next morning did the scene become fully apparent. Inside the fences, in front of striking turf-glad hills, the men saw dozens of closely bat sterile huts, the bunks of Nakalo internment camp. Like the thousands already confined, the new arrivals were mostly unsuspecting professionals who had immigrated from throughout Europe to England in search of better wages and opportunities. With the Aliens Restriction Act of 1914, the British government formally authorized the internment of anyone suspected of espionage. Having the German name was reason enough, and by 1915, around 24,000 men were placed in Nakalo. But amid the anonymity of the camp, one of the men, internee number 14001, Jay Pilatus, might have stood out that September day. Lithe and broad-chested, he moved with notable athleticism. With the others, internee number 14001J Pilatus, his index card was incorrect. His real name was Joseph Pilates. He was led to Camp 4, issued a bunk bed, and assigned a chore. For most of his fellow internees, this marked a sort of a prison sentence, years of nothing to do, nothing at all. But for Pilates, confinement paradoxically offered a kind of liberation. As the German U-boats sliced toward Allied vessels and the Great War, War raged on, and as months gave way to years on man, Pilates explored a question they had pondered since childhood. Could he reimagine the capabilities of the human body through an anatomically-based method of training, take inspiration from scientific treatises, the carefree movement of children, and the dexterous ease of on the craggy aisle, Pilates found a laboratory. I had time to consolidate the method, and I had the opportunity to work with gentlemen who were coming in with different problems and different ailments, he once said. During his internment, 
He also got a chance to work as a nurse. This in turn gave him the chance to experiment by attaching springs to hospital beds so that patients could start toning their muscles even while they're still in bed bound. Such were the origins of the first Pilates machines, now known as the Pilates Reformer. In the early incarnation, the Pilates Reformer was shaped like a sliding bed and used springs as resistance. An interesting fact about this is that during this time, the Spanish flu pandemic was raging. However, not a single patient under Joseph's care died from the illness. In fact, many had attributed to staying healthy from the exercise regimen he had prescribed. Additionally, while Pilates was training with other internees, many of them soldiers, they were the only ones in the entire camp that did not come down with the flu. So I'm bringing up this story today because, you know, while we're not, you know, we're not in an internment, we're not prisoners, um, but we are kind of in a lockdown, right, Phil? Right. And look, I'm trying to wrap my head around this. Are you telling me that, first of all, Pilates was started in an internment camp back in the 1900s? Yes, sir. World War One. Wow. Right? It's, it's amazing, you know, because that is so prevalent today. He, he actually made it back out in the U.S., uh, I think, 1935. Uh, and he opened up a studio. And actually, it was really popular with, with you know, famous dancers all the way up into the 60s. That is so incredibly cool. And, you know, I'm one of those guys, Jason, that I pride myself on knowing the obscure things that most people don't or wouldn't or, or you know. And it's, it's great parlay for conversations. And I didn't know this story. How cool is that? And furthermore, you're telling me that um, during the outbreak of the Spanish flu, did you say zero of his people? Zero in his, in his internment ward. So those are the people that he trained with on a daily exercise regimen. Those were the ones that he was treating that were either wounded soldiers or just injured internees. Um, some of them, some of the wounded and the injured actually did get sick, but they were, they were still doing their exercises and built up that immune system and they were able to tough it out. That's incredible because, you know, by way of uh, the nature of those injuries, they're going to be immunocompromised. And to think that, sure, they're going to be more susceptible than a healthy, quote unquote, healthy person that hasn't been shot or stabbed or a combination of both, to think that they could recover more quickly because of Pilates, because of exercise. Yeah. And that, you know, most of us that do know about the Spanish flu, I mean, during that time, that was all but a death sentence, you know, even for the healthiest of people. Yeah. So, wow, how relevant to today is this conversation? Absolutely relevant. And that's why I want to bring it up because how many of us are Netflixing and chilling it out and <laughs> <laughs> probably way too close to a refrigerator? We're far away from the gym. Some of us don't have gym equipment, but what's stopping us? Is it, it's, it's probably motivation, but what else, you know? Yeah. Well, and with the body weights. You know, I don't want to be too melodramatic here, but I think it needs to be said that while it may not be a life or death decision, whether you exercise or not, 
what it could potentially do is, you know, put you in a better position for your body to resist uh, the debilitating effects if, if you were to happen to face exposure. And that's one of many reasons why I think we should have a good, healthy argument towards the idea of getting busy and getting active. Absolutely. And, and I want to talk about being active with masks because I see that a lot. Please don't do that. <laughs> I see runners out there running with a mask on. That's absolutely not good for you. Well, you know? what do you mean? So you're, you're, you're inhaling all that carbon dioxide. It's, it's, you're, you're inhaling your own breath. You're rebreathing. That is compromising. That could actually be compromising to your immune system because you're, you're not getting fresh oxygen. Um, that's not good. <laughs> Really? Oh, my wife just went jogging this morning. She could bring her mask, but I recommend unless she's close to others, you know, maybe pull it down so she can get some fresh air. Wow, I wouldn't have even thought of that, man. That's a really important tip. Yeah, so, you know, also, you know, there's the other side of the coin, too. There's the, the stay at home, I'm going to work out, and I'm going to get that beach body by the time we get out of here. So the other side of the coin is how many of us are training too, too much, too much training that compromises your immune system. If we feel that we're getting to the point where we're training, you know, I'm, I'm on the power lifting side uh, and the bodybuilding and all that kind of stuff and had a lot of um, experience with training athletes, you know, one of those indicators of them, you know, really starting to train too hard you know, obviously is, you know, body aches more, more frequently, you're tired, you're fatigued, but also you're getting injured uh, easier. Um, once you start kind of feeling that initial, you know, fatigue and having trouble recovering between workouts, I would say take your foot off the gas a little bit so that immune system can recover because uh, then you're overly compromised, uh, especially for something like COVID. Yeah, you bring a good point. You know, I'm a, so body type wise, I'm like, uh, what was that cartoon character? Um, Johnny Bravo, I think he was, where he's like all upper, upper body. Now I'm a much smaller version of that, right? But I've got a bigger upper body. I've got these semi-developed bird legs beneath them. And the reason there's semi-developed bird legs is because I don't do like doing leg workouts. And I've realized that I need to change that, right? So I started, I did for the first time this workout called the Assassin's Workout, which is all like grungy box jumping leg kinds of stuff, right? And, you know, to your point, two days into this thing, my legs feel so weird and it's like they're pulling the life energy out of the rest of my body. And I literally started to think to myself and I looked up symptoms for coronavirus and, and noticed that chills and, and different body feelings and fatigue come and I'm like, oh my goodness, did I get exposed somehow? I don't even know. Uh, today I feel great. And it was the damn assassin's workout. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe, maybe build up to doing that multiple times a week. Maybe start out, start it out once a week and then twice and then three times, you know, just slowly build up to it because yeah, those, a lot of those workout programs that are out there, like they're just smoke sessions. They're there to just mess you up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, clearly this one did. Yeah, you know, so you bring up a good point, right? First of all, we're both advocating 
you know, we're all faced with this exceptional set of circumstances. Keep yourself active, keep your body healthy, wherever you are, you know, in your exercise regimen, whether you haven't exercised for 10 years or you're active, right? There's a way to ramp up and start and you want to start intelligently. Unlike me, you don't want to, <laughs> you don't want your first workout to be the assassin's workout, but you can certainly get out and walk and start moving and move your way towards a, a more consistent regimen of exercise for a lot of reasons, including your body's ability to fight back against something that you might get exposed to. 100%, you know, and, and you, got, you have a good point about the consistency. It's just keep doing it, keep doing it. Um, a lot of your health is made in the kitchen too. You know, we've got a, you know, we have a sugar problem. Everybody knows it in America. No. <laughs> You know, maybe have one less sleeve of Oreos per day, Phil. Yeah, <laughs> you know, better Oreos. Thank you very much. Um, yeah, you know, and I want to touch on something else, too. Um, I, you know, forgive me for generalizing the American corporate culture pre-COVID, but, I, you know, I've traveled all around the world, and there is a better sensibility in the European countries and in Latin America attentive to mind, body, and spirit, and in, certainly in the Asian cultures, uh, more than the American corporate culture. Would you agree or disagree? I would agree with that. And, and, and in some ways, more in some ways than others. Like when I lived in Italy, everyone smoked, but everyone was pretty good shape yeah. <laughs> because they all rode or walked, they rode their bikes or walked everywhere. Yeah. And, you know, to that point, they all rode their bikes or walked. Um, one of my favorite go-to books is uh, Brain Rules by John Medina. And one of the things John Medina, he's just a brilliant guy, and I love his perspective, but he wrote the book to help teachers understand how to be more effective with their students. And one of the things he critiques right out of the gate is the fact that it is stupid to put, take students and put them in a chair for eight hours. And he goes through you know, in our, in the development, in, in the human development, why that is. And if you think about where we all began, we were hunters and gatherers moving across fields to try to find food. And that's how the, the you know, the core, what is it called, the red stem, um, you know, developed in our brain. And we still have very primitive parts of our brain, although certainly it's evolved over, you know, thousands of years. But that that core functionality of the brain requires movement. And through movement, we think better, we're more engaged, we're clearer. Um, you think about times like this, and we're all human beings, right? So we go through these cycles of feeling really good, and sometimes I find myself forgetting that we're in the middle of a worldwide pandemic, you know? Just because I'm not looking at the news for an hour, normal things happen within the day. I'm talking to clients or reading a book or whatever, and. I just forget what's going on and then it hits me again. And that has an impact in our mood, in our, in our positivity. And depression is a real thing. It's a real thing before COVID. It's a real thing now for people. Think about mind, body, and spirit. You know, what exercise brings to your mind is quantifiable and real. Man, just walking, man. Just movement. Just like you said, you know, Any type of movement, right? It 
it strengthens your, your cardiovascular system in, in some way, and it gives it an opportunity to get better. Yeah, it sure does. You know, Jason, you don't know this about me, because uh, I've never shared this with you, but um, my brother and sister-in-law are both neurologists. You don't know that, right? I did not know that. Yeah. Um, and they specialize, or for the majority of their career, they've specialized in stroke rehabilitation. So let's run through some numbers. Stroke kills 140,000 Americans every year. Uh, it accounts for one out of every 20 deaths. Um, so it's a significant situation. And the number of people that have strokes versus the number that die is just a remarkable number. But sometimes because of a stroke, uh, right? And stroke is when the, the oxygen isn't getting to your brain. It's different than a heart attack. This is a stroke that, that debilitates a portion of your brain, usually movement-related portions, right? Right. So um, people who suffer from stroke are sometimes forever changed. And so early on in my brother's uh, uh, scientific career, it, literally this is how it happened. Um, <laughs> he, he, of all things, he put a, um, a, a mouse with a, uh, with a wobbly limb, with a hemiparetic limb on a treadmill. And I can't remember exactly why the hell he did that, but he did. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> Yeah, and what he noticed is that the, the, the mouse became, began to walk symmetrically no on all kidding. four limbs. And he's like, why would that be, right? So this advanced through years of treadmill um, tests, years and years of treadmill tests. And what he found, what he began to found, find is that people also could, with hemiparetic limbs, could get onto a treadmill and start walking and walk in symmetry. And so this went further and he, you know, they began to do some uh, 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 EEG kinds of studies and see how the brain was stimulated. And what they found is that the, the brain could literally teach itself to walk again. So you think that, you know, every movement we make is powered by, powered by and through the brain, right? And those movement centers get turned off during a stroke. It's very common to see a hemiparetic left arm or uh, drop foot on the right, um, you know, and, and that drop foot causes falls and other things. So if a person can learn to walk again, then they can learn to run again. If they can learn to run again, they can learn to live again. And he literally for a bunch of years ran a stroke rehabilitation center where I met these patients too. There, there was a guy I met that said, I was not even supposed to talk, be able to talk again or walk again. And he said, I ran a marathon last year. Um, Wow. Yeah. So you think about that for a minute, right? And um, you can come back from almost anything, but the power of uh, retraining your brain through movement, something that we were, you know, from the beginning of mankind on, movement has been a part of our development. And when you take that away and plop on your couch and watch Netflix, you're literally devolving. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, so that's that feeling, huh? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and you know, so let's talk about the exponential um, build that can occur, right? So you, you take away the movement and you're instead on the couch and then, you know, moods change. And with mood change comes a change in thinking. And with that change in thinking, you know, we self-talk to a degree of about 500,000 messages to ourselves a day. Well, how does that message change to ourselves when 
we're motivated and we just did a good workout and we were sweaty a little bit and all that you know adrenaline pump is going on we've got a positive message we're sending to our body and ourselves and it's going to influence those 500,000 messages a day that go through our head conversely it can go in a different direction when we're not exercising and moving and engaging the brain in the way that we should right absolutely i i, I actually understand you know you actually feel that when you're you know, you're having one of those super lazy, unproductive days. I don't know about you, but sometimes I just feel dumber. <laughs> <after> <laughs> but I can imagine like if somebody was prone to depression or something like that, that could really mess them up, right? Yeah. Yeah, it could. And it, it like everything, it has a compounding effect, either positive or negative. Um, but a very compounding effect. And what we don't realize is those little micro messages that, that we send to ourselves all day long are affected by our mood and our mood is affected by the things that we do and nothing more affects our ability to think more clearly and to use our brain more effectively than movement because that is how, from the evolution of mankind, parts of our, the primitive parts of our brain have been wired to be. That simple. There you have it, you know, just get out there and move. Movement. <laughs> no, really cool. I, yeah, so we have a, one of those portable badminton sets, and uh, we, the family was out playing. We took turns playing badminton. Oh, yeah, I saw those pictures. They looked like fun. Yeah, and I was, you know, it was really cool that a couple of my friends are like, hey, where'd you get that? And so I sent them the link to Amazon so they could get their own set. And even if it's something as simple as playing badminton in the front yard, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Wow, but what a cool set. Pilates was created in World War I during the Spanish flu. And Pilates is a dude. And <laughs> <laughs> he actually had studios in the United States until almost the 70s. Yeah. Yeah, and um, I mean, obviously, people see Pilates studios all over the place even today. Um, how my mom even taught Pilates classes at the YMCA when I was growing up. Is that right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, just that one, you know, oppor I, I, I call it an opportunity for him. It sucks. You know, he was in the internment camp and everything, but he even saw it as an opportunity too. That one thing happened for him, and he was able to change the world. You know? Indeed. Yeah, indeed. And how many lives did that experience he went through how many lives did that touch you know over the course of time well yeah i can imagine it influenced uh, so much in physical therapy practices that are being used today as well yeah oh so cool man thank you so much for sharing that story and in you know broadening my mind about pilates i'm gonna do some digging after this yeah your <laughs> ball's in your court now <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Cool. But hey man, my mind's still blown about Shackleton though. So so you still got you still have that. <laughs> well, you know, I was thinking, yeah, and, and I hope everyone listening today has had a chance to listen to the Shackleton episode. And if you haven't, you really owe it to yourself to do that. Um, and we've got another really cool one coming up uh Tuesday that we're gonna post. And then, you know, I was starting to think beyond that, like um you know, around the idea of how our knowledge and training can influence and change our perspectives on life. So I have a really interesting story of the solving of an ancient art mystery. 
Oh, I'm looking forward to that. That sounds like a good one. Yeah, yeah. I'm gonna yeah, I'm gonna tell that story next time we get together. All right, all right. I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> cool. All right, I guess wrap it up, huh? Yeah, yeah, indeed. And um, yeah, man, like I said, just cool stuff, Jason. That was a really, really good call on that story. Thanks, man. Yeah, I'll have to think a few steps ahead of you uh, so I can come up with another really great story for everybody. That won't be too hard. I'm moving slow these days. <laughs> <laughs> I'll get you. All right. Well, hey, man, thanks for listening. Appreciate it. Hope everybody else out there enjoys the story and gets that. I hope it helps at least one person. Yeah. Yeah. And if it does, then we've done our job. 100%. 100%. All right, brother. Yep. Talk soon, man. Take care.